Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jehoniah and his brothers at the time of the deportations to Babylon. After the deportations to Babylon, Jeconiah is the funny of the father of Shealtiel. Of course, we all know Shealtiel, right? Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid. Abuid, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportations to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportations of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Here ends the reading of God's Word. And it is riveting stuff, isn't it? Riveting stuff. As soon as I started reading, some of you started glazing over, and some of you were thinking, is he really going to name all these names. And if any of you spoke Hebrew or Greek, you would be like, oh my goodness, he's pronouncing these terribly. <laughs> How often we get to a genealogy, we're just like, next? Yeah, or we, we'd be like, that guy, and that guy, and that guy, right? We just kind of skip over the genealogies. But today I want to ponder why, I, th- I want to try to argue why I think genealogies are important. So let's consider a few elements of this genealogy. First of all, consider its location. Matthew wanted it to begin his gospel. Okay, Matthew could have started with all kinds of stuff. He could have started the birth of Jesus. He could have started all kinds of places. But he wants to start with the genealogy. And this is very interesting because there are four, four gospels that we consider canonical in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as early as we have those four gospels, and it's very early that those sort of rise to the top as the four gospels, Matthew is always first. Matthew is always first. He's always listed first in any of the, of the church fathers. Which means not only does this section start the book of Matthew, but for the early church, this was the start of the entire New Testament. They very, they very quickly said, this is what we're leading off with. Okay, this is what we're starting with. So, so this passage is actually the hinge between the Old and the New Testament. It's the beginning, not just of Matthew, but of the entire New Testament. Now, consider the value of ancestry. 
Human beings often like to know where they come from. You can see in the popularity of Ancestry.com, a lot of people are doing their genealogies. Okay, but a lot of genealogies, you can only go back so far, right? Okay, but in the ancient world, you, you, who, you came, who you were was where you came from. Your family was who you were. So in those days, it was a lot, it was a lot more important to keep track of who you were. And, and in fact, they could track it a lot more than the last couple hundred years. They could track it way, way back. So for Jewish people, if somebody who's Jewish is reading a gospel like Matthew's, and Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, one of the first questions they're going to have is, okay, if you say this is the Christ, if you say this is the Messiah, well, who is this dad? Who is this band? Who, who are grandfather? Who, wh- where is this person from? Right? We even know in the gospels, in Matthew and John, people won't believe in Jesus because they say, isn't this the son of Joseph the carpenter? They can't imagine that Joseph the carpenter would have the Messiah as a son. So part of what Matthew's doing is he, he's automatically, right at the start of his gospel, trying to line up people to understand, no, 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 this guy's got pretty good pedigree. Okay? That he is someone who could be the Messiah. Now consider the title. When Matthew goes to start this genealogy, he starts the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so, so, so right away, Matthew wants to say who this is. Well, there's some pretty huge claims in this. We read in English the book of the genealogy, but in Greek, it's very interesting. It actually says the Biblos Geneseos. Geneseos, what does that sound like? Genesis. Literally, literally, it's the same as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This, is, this starts out the book of Genesis. Okay? It starts out the book of Genesis. And so by using that phrase, Matthew is trying to take us way back to the beginning of the Bible, to this huge part of the story. Then he says the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is, Jesus is just a name we've, we know that actually is a fairly popular name. Uh, Yeshua in Hebrew. It's actually the same as Yahshua. Joshua. Joshua, Jesus, actually the same name in Hebrew, just with a little bit of a different pronunciation. Very popular in Jesus' day. But Christ is not a name. Okay? There's no last names in the ancient world. They didn't give last names. They said son of. Right? He was the son of Joseph. Okay? So Christ is not a last name. It wasn't Mary Christ and Joseph Christ had Jesus Christ. Okay? Christ is a title, and the title is the word for Messiah in Greek. It's from a kind of oil, Christos, that you would anoint somebody. You would anoint a king. You would anoint someone who was sick. You would anoint a priest when they became a priest with this oil. And so Christos was the term for the anointed one, the Messiah who was coming. So right away, Matthew is saying, hey, book of Genesis to the Christ. This, this one, so he's connecting the beginning of the story to the coming Messiah already. Then he says what? The son of David. That's a phrase related to the Messiah also. There, there was an understanding that whoever the Messiah was going to be had to be from David's royal lineage. And then he says son of Abraham. Son of Abraham is not specifically associated with Messiah, but it was a way of saying a Jew. He was a Jew. And in fact, sometimes that phrase even means like a, like a true Jew. Like someone who lives up to the name of Abraham. Oh, you, you're a real son of Abraham. Like you, you're not just, you're not just a, a son of Abraham. Like he had many sons and I'm one of them and so are you. You're like special and live up to the name of Abraham. So right away, 
Matthew is making huge claims in the very first introduction, the very first verse that we have here. So consider its structure. At the end of the genealogy, Matthew makes a point of laying out its structure, and he uses the number 14. Now, there's a lot of debate about why he uses 14, um, and, and I'm not sure any of it's super compelling. I don't know why he quite uses 14, but he does say 14. There's 14 generations from uh, Abraham to David, 14 from David to, um, uh, uh, to the exile, exile to Jesus, another 14. Interesting point, if you count them, there's only 13 the last time. They, Matthew can't count to 14, is what we can say from that. Why 14? I don't know. But, but, but the, the hinges, those key people that he uses, those make a lot of sense. Any Jewish account of who the Messiah was going to be would have to go through Abraham. For, for an American parallel, Abraham is the George Washington of the Jewish people, right? He's the founder. Yeah, he's sort of the, the senior, the, he's the one that started it all. Listen to the call of Abraham in Abraham chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So there's this promise that's given to Abraham that he's going to bless him with a family. which He doesn't have a, a, a child of his own with his own wife at this time. So it's a big question mark. Okay, And then through this nation that his family is going to become, he's actually going to be a blessing to the world. So if you read that book of Genesis, you find that Abraham does have kids and then his kids have kids. And then there's but but then they end up in Egypt in slavery. There's a a threat. So there was this promise that was made. But then the promise was sort of threatened. They finally get out of that. They, They get into the land and then they still are struggling to be a people. What they say is we need a king. And they get a king, but it's King Saul, and he's not that great of a king, and he doesn't bring the people well together. The Philistines are really threatening. And so finally they get King David. Now, for an American parallel, King David is sort of the Abraham Lincoln of the Jewish story. He's the one that sort of saves when we're about to split. It doesn't really last long in Israel's case. But David, um, David becomes this, this next figure in this covenant, in this agreement, in this promise. And here's in 2 Samuel 7. It says, and, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's what God says to David when he makes a promise to him. Okay, and so the understanding was, okay, this promise that was given to Abraham uh, it's actually sort of re, uh, restated with Moses. And then we get to David and it's restated again. And it's made even bigger. To say that there's going to be a king that goes on forever and ever. This promise that was given to Abraham is now reiterated and expanded in David. And yet it doesn't quite work out that way. At least the way you might expect. Because David has a son named Solomon who rules the nation of Israel. But then the nation falls apart, divides into two and some of them are David's children and grandchildren and whatever, and some are not. And eventually, as the nation is split, they fall apart and they end up uh, falling into exile. They get carried off. This is the moment of crisis. The promise that was made to Abraham, the promise that was given to David. What's going to happen to it when all of our leaders are carried off into exile? We're not even a real nation anymore. 
They're trying to wipe out our existence. How can God's uh, established age throne forever when there's no longer a throne and no longer a people to have a throne over? You understand the crisis. So in going through these hinge points, what Matthew has done is Matthew's actually given us the main hinge points of the Old Testament. Okay, he's retelling the Old Testament story, but leading to what? Well, the promise that was made, the promise that was reiterated, the promise that was threatened. Now the promise is being fulfilled. Now someone from Abraham's line, somebody from David's line is coming who is going to be a ruler. He's going to be Christ. And we can say a lot more about a lot of these figures and about a lot of this, but, but let's consider one other important facet of this genealogy. Let's consider the women that are included in a genealogy. Matthew includes five women in this genealogy, which is strange because a lot of times women are not listed in genealogies. Okay, the, the royalty passed through male headship, did not pass through the women. If a woman was going to get into a genealogy, you, you can bet that she was a very important woman. Okay, like I, I, if Sarah made this, I'd be like, okay, all right. Rebecca makes this, okay, all right, I could see that. But the fact that we not only have women listed in this genealogy, but the women that we have, okay, Jesus, or the, Matthew gives Tamar in the story. Tamar is a sermon. You've probably never heard a story of the story of Tamar in a sermon. Okay, it's in Genesis thirty-eight. Uh, you can read it for yourself. But here, here's the here's the gist of it. She was the wife of Ur, the oldest son of Judah. And Judah was one of the twelve sons, and he was kind of the scoundrel of the group. She was either Canaanite or Aramean. Okay, she was not Jewish, and when her husband died. What was she had, didn't have any sons. And what was supposed to happen is one of his brothers was supposed to marry her. It's called Levirate marriage to give her a son so that she could carry on the family name and the estate. Okay, because a woman couldn't do that. That's why they didn't make the genealogies normally. But none of the men would do it. And Judah wouldn't make any of the men do it, even though he was the patriarch and should have. So she dressed as a scandalous woman of the night seduced Judah, her father-in-law, has twins by that relationship, proves that it was him, and actually he calls her blessed for doing what was right and for fighting for what was right when he wouldn't do it. You never heard a sermon on this one, did you? (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Rahab is listed in the genealogy. She comes from Joshua chapter 2. She's Canaanite. She's living in the city of Jericho, and she is professionally a woman of the night. She's not dressed like it. She is one. But when Joshua sends in two slaves to scout out the city, she helps them. She hides them at her house and then lets them down out a window to save them. And then when Israel comes and destroys Jericho, she is rescued from that. She gets out. She survives and then goes to live with the Jewish people. And in fact, seems to have gotten married and have kids because she's listed in a genealogy. Ruth. Ruth has a whole book about her story. She was not Jewish either. She's a Moabite woman. She married a Jewish man who was living in Moab. And then when he died and her husband, her father-in-law died, she goes back to the land of Israel. Well, not back. She's never been there with her mother, mother-in-law, Naomi. There she meets a man named Boaz. She goes to see Boaz in the middle of the night to offer herself in marriage there's some question, if you read the text and you hear debates, about how much exactly she offered that night. Okay? 
It's always been suspect here. They do end up marrying, and she ends up being a great-grandparent of King David. The wife of Uriah is listed. Anybody know what her name was? Bathsheba. Bathsheba, that's right. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. Uriah is one of David's warriors, and he is called Uriah the Hittite, meaning he's not Jewish. So the question is, was Bathsheba Jewish? If she was Jewish, she married a Hittite man. Okay, and we know the story of Bathsheba, right? She's out taking a bath on a rooftop one night, like you do, and David sees her, longs for her, has an affair with her, ends up having her husband killed like Godfather style in battle, marries her, they end up having a son named Solomon. Okay, so, um, so Bathsheba, she, she was probably Jewish, but she married a Hittite man. Um, now, she was taken advantage of by the king, surely, but she also seems to go along with a whole bunch of not good stuff. Okay, the, you, how do you stay married to the man who killed your husband? That's a lot to deal with, right? And so, you have these four women, most of whom are not Jewish. Everybody caught that? The one who was Jewish married a Hittite. Okay? You have four women with some kind of questionable evenings in their past. Everybody seeing this? This is not Sarah. This is not Rebecca. These are, if you were going to pick women to put in the genealogy, why would you put these four women? But there's a fifth woman. Who's the fifth woman? Mary. Now, Mary is Jewish. We're told that she's a good Jewish girl. But did the community think she was a good Jewish girl? Probably not. Okay? I don't know if you've ever heard anybody use a virgin conception excuse before. But nobody in town was like, yeah, probably an angel did that. Yeah. Right? That's totally innocent. No, no. Actually, isn't that interesting? Here's these, here's these, these four women with questionable background. Probably Mary was seen very similarly. It's probably why they don't immediately go back to Nazareth. They, they stay in Bethlehem a while, they go to Egypt, and then they finally go back years later, hoping maybe people will have forgotten because that's questionable. And so in a way, Mary stands in contrast to these other women, but, but in a way also, in terms of the community, they might have wondered if she fit with those women. But interestingly enough, all four, all four of those Old Testament women, God also used. God also blessed. They were also praised at times for doing the right thing in God's eyes. I think the biggest part of this is showing a, a big theme in Matthew. That this Messiah is for everybody. Whatever you've done, whatever you have had done to you, Jesus is for you too. Yeah, he's got the pedigree. I mean, he's got the Abraham, he's got the David, he's got the, the line. But, but he's also a Jesus for whatever you've done in your past. For whatever people say about you behind your back. He's the Christ for people who have been abused and for people who have been made mistakes. So we tend to turn out, tune out the genealogies. I get it. There's a lot of names. A lot of names on there. I have no idea who they are. A lot of names we have no idea who they are. There's some interesting discussion because if you go study, I'm going to do this in Bible study next month. Um, if you go study the Gospel of Luke, he has a genealogy that's different from this one. Okay, they actually don't quite line up. And how do we make sense of that? But, but the, the, they are important. And this one, I think, is especially important because of its place, because of the way Matthew structures it, because of the women that he lists. 
And I think it's important as we come into Advent, as we head towards Christmas, that there was a story, a Christmas story B.C., before Christ, before Christmas. There was a Christmas story building up to Christmas. In fact, John makes sure that we understand that Jesus was a part of that story. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, it's not that Jesus starts at Christmas. Jesus has been around forever. But what happened was, once the genealogy got to a point where it was ready, once the time was at hand, Jesus became flesh, incarnate. He came as a baby. He has always held the world together. He was a part of the story of Abraham and Moses. He was there with Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, just like he is with us. And if you don't understand the whole story, and if you don't think about the beauty of story, you miss some of the beauty of Christmas. Because all this led up to what we are going to be celebrating over the next month. The birth of this Christ. That finally, after Abraham, after David, after exile, Christ has come. So this Advent, may you remember the story before Christmas. So that as we think about the Christmas story, it'll mean so much more. Amen.